Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. In other words, might get a little blue in here. Hope you can handle it. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 31st, 2021. I guess it's June 1st, 2021, but it's the week of May 31st, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from the French Open and what that episode reveals about athletes and mental health and athletes and the press. We'll also discuss the spate of atrocious fan behavior in NBA arenas. And Rebecca Schumann will join us to talk about Simone Biles' latest feats of gymnastics excellence and whether international sportocrats are out to get her. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., back in our loving arms after two weeks away, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Joel. It's going to be a double dose of sportocratic behavior. We got the tennis and gymnastics. So I'm Josh. That's Joel, by the way. Yeah, I hadn't been introduced yet, but that's fine. It's he's Stefan's getting back did to Did I say Joel? You know. You did. Yeah, just getting your just getting your sea legs. You know, Joel hosting, you know, threw me off. Yeah. Well, that's what we were trying to do to the listeners, not to our actual, <laughs> you know, panel. But uh, you know. We're it's all, good to know that it's good to know that we've got good at misdirection. We're all friends here. Uh Joel Anderson. Host of the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6 and the host of Slow Burn Season 3. And he's on the West Coast and a Slate staff writer. Just going to throw things in in a, yeah. in a random order. There's a lot of things. Yeah, you went with 6 to 3 normally. But again, I mean, it's all all in service of keeping people off their feet. So that's I'm with it. If I uh, listen to Slow Burn Season 6 first, am I going to be confused if I haven't listened to Slow Burn Season, th- season 3? It'll probably be really difficult because I think if you go to the slow burn feed, there's nothing up from slow burn six yet. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know you never know. I mean, I have, you have to give it a shot. I'm still trying to catch up on podcast too right now, so you just never know. Maybe you should you should go to the feed anyway if you're listening to this and see what's there and listen to it just just to see season five out now. Mm-hmm. Last Wednesday, Naomi Osaka said she wouldn't attend post match news conferences at the French Open, writing on Instagram that I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. On Sunday, she won her opening match and kept her word. The French Open fined her and tennis officials threatened to kick her out of this and future events. And then on Monday, Osaka withdrew from the tournament. She said she had suffered long bouts of depression since winning her first major in 2018 and would now take some time away from the court. Joel, there's a lot to discuss about the events of the last few days, from athlete mental health, as Josh said in the intro, to news conferences at big sports events, to the treatment of black and women athletes, to the way athletes express grievances and the way that sports authorities respond to them. But I want to start here with the observation that is pretty banal, but I think encapsulates all of this. This whole episode just feels so profoundly sad and also so utterly avoidable. Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, like everybody, you know, I hope that Naomi Osaka is okay and on the road to getting better, 
getting healthier and getting the help that she needs. Um, at this point, you'd have to say this seems to be much more about her health than media access and post-match press conferences. So, like, te- clearly tennis can wait for another day. And I-, I should state right up front, and I think people know this if they listen to this show regularly, that I'm not much of a tennis fan. I'm not, I, don't, I rarely watch it. With the notable exceptions of Serena and Naomi and, like, a lot of Black Americans who are sort of culturally removed from the country club sports, I've developed a rooting interest in her success. And it's hard not to sound a little paternal when I say this, but she's young, And I've always sort of worried about her because she's always seemed a little nervous, a little gloomy in the spotlight, right? Like it was a a chore for her. And so, yeah, it was just sort of hard to not want to wrap my arms around her after the 2018 U.S. Open when she beat Serena Williams and started to cry. Because I think everybody sort of wanted to see Serena win a major and she denied her. And Serena was like a lot of young tennis players. Serena was her idol and she felt a little guilty for denying Serena uh, in that moment. So, yeah, I I felt like, you know, I felt really close to her. I wanted to, oh, man, I just want to hug little Naomi, right? Um, Also, it helps a little bit that Naomi actually looks like one of my friend's daughters, but that's neither here nor there. But um, I think what makes the most sense to me here is that we take Naomi Osaka at her word. So if answering post-game press conference questions fuels her self-doubt and mental health issues, then she should take whatever measures are appropriate. And I guess, though, I don't understand how that has morphed into a larger conversation about the utility of these press conferences. She said it was a Naomi problem. She didn't say that she'd been in conversation with other tennis players about this particular issue, and it hasn't been a concern echoed by other major tennis figures, at this moment at least. So I think because people don't like the press, particularly the sports press, particularly the European sports press and its previous treatment of black female athletes, that's how this conversation is taken off. So it's like, is it okay to just say that this is Naomi's issue and leave it there for a moment? So I'm I'm with you on thinking that Naomi Osaka's health and well-being is at the forefront and should be here. But the reason that the conversation went the places it did was because in her original statement explaining that she wasn't doing press, Osaka did use the first person plural. She talked about athletes collectively. We're often sat here and asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before or asked questions that bring doubt into our minds. I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. She also talked about press conferences um, in terms of less about mental health and less about off-court stuff and more in that initial statement about on-court um, situations and about how they affected her ability to win matches. And so the kind of re- response that came was from the press saying, you're obligated to do this, stop complaining, stop whining. But I thought interestingly from her fellow players talking about not being critical of Osaka, but saying in less kind of harsh terms, this is an obligation. We do this win or lose. And there's this kind of cliche, Joel, right? About like what it means to be a good sport. Like you should shake your opponent's hand after uh, a match. And it was kind of, I, I think, discussed in those terms. Like if you win, you should talk about it and be a good sport and you know honor your opponent and everything. But also if you lose, you should have the grace to appear in front of the press and answer questions. And whether it's being tough or whether it's being honorable or polite or whatever kind of values that these are the, these are the things that we should expect of 
whether there are athletes or, you know, things that were taught as we're kids. And so that's kind of how it started off. And in the second statement, Stefan, where she talked about being depressed since 2018, and when she talked about things in a much more kind of personal. serious and intense and personal way, I think the conversation then shifted. And, you know, I thought there was a, there was a really good tweet from a woman named Hannah Wilkes who said, Fun fact about depression and anxiety for those who never suffered, the times when it's most urgently necessary to ask for help, support, respite, the times when you need it the most, are the times when you're least capable of communicating what you need. And so I'm hesitant to say this is Naomi Osaka's fault for not being as articulate as she should have been the first time around. I do feel like if everybody had talked to each other, if the Grand Slams, if the French Open, if they had been able to have like a genuine exchange of views and ideas rather than this being expressed through like images of notes on Twitter, then maybe this could have all gone differently. But I do I do feel like the conversation that, that came out of this was as a result of what Osaka said originally. I, I agree with you on that. And I, I don't want to blame Naomi Osaka here for her statement for the reasons, some of the reasons you just articulated. But what struck me is that this is the wealthiest, most successful women's athlete on the planet. She has a retinue of people working with her. Um, and it blows my mind that that this happened at all. I mean, yes, athletes now have much more agency and personal ability to say what they want to say on social media, but it seems clear to me that nobody, her agent, her coaches, her corporate sponsors, nobody was involved in that first statement, which read like it was dashed off on Instagram. And nobody, and this probably shouldn't have been Naomi Osaka's uh, job, nobody anticipated the potential for blowback and not just the fact of the blowback, but how the blowback might affect her emotionally. And, you know, we did hear from the French Open say that they did reach out to Osaka, and presumably that means her people, after that first statement and got no response to try to discuss this because... You know, it's so obvious here that even after, even if you feel like the first statement was intemperate and too broad and too accusatory and too general, there was room here to try to figure something out. And whether Osaka and her team tried to do that with the French Open is, you know, it seems like they didn't. And according to the French Open, they didn't. But it seems like there was room for accommodation here as you said, Josh, if people had communicated before this blew up. And now, yes, it has exploded into something that it wasn't supposed to or feels like that it should be about whether athletes should talk to reporters. Um, that seems to be the red herring that everyone is going to focus on as a result of Osaka saying that she does have these mental health issues and needs to step away to deal with them. I, I don't think that anybody would have begrudged her in the first place, right? If she had said, you know what? I don't want to do this. I need some time off. I need some time off from this. If, if, like, if, 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 if the second statement had been the first statement, I don't think there would have been much controversy about this at all. Do you? Like, I, I think that she, she said, okay, I, I need some time off. Like, I'm 
I've been dealing with depression. This is really difficult for me. I think we've kind of come a long way in a short amount of time, like on this sort of stuff, right? Like, I, obviously, like somebody like Ricky Williams didn't get opportunity in this atmosphere, or, or Zach Greenkey, or Jennifer Capriati, like uh, people, notable athletes in our lifetime who have dealt with mental health issues and had to, you know, sort of work around that. Like, Naomi has gotten a lot more sympathy for that. And I do think that people would have been much more willing to extend her some grace under these circumstances. But, you know, I, I find it interesting you said that stuff and that, like, her team, you know, that maybe they should have had a conversation. I mean, the one thing about it is that those people work for her, right? right. And so she's in control of her career. And so it's just po- it, it is possible that they couldn't ad- they couldn't stop her from making that first statement. And then after the first statement, and then when those other Grand Slams came out with a sort of a very heavy handed Mm -hmm. statement and, and, um, in response, then they had to bring it in and reel it back in. And I wonder, I I wonder if, again, we're, this is all speculation, right? But like, I I do wonder if she handled it on her own in the first place. And then in between, there was a lot of, you know, talking and navigating the environment after that. So I'm going to just list a bunch of different stuff about Naomi Osaka, and then maybe we can talk about it afterwards. And this is, you know, an an incomplete list of the things that are really notable and interesting and, and important about her. Joel, you mentioned the 2018 U.S. Open, her first Grand Slam win came in the like kind of biggest crucible ever in modern tennis with... Serena Williams getting into that conflict with the chair umpire and the crowd booing. Um, Booing doesn't really do it justice, but it was just the most kind of intense possible environment and the least celebratory environment possible for one's like maiden Grand Slam title. You also have her being uh, representing Japan internationally, but also being Haitian and being this sort of... um, representative for all different sorts of people. And that's like a mantle that she's worn really proudly, but it's also like a weight that she carries. Um, On the other hand, the fact that she's um, Japanese in particular, I think, has led her to have these enormous endorsement deals and made her one of the highest paid athletes in the world. Um, And she's taken on, you know, she's has equity in Sweet Green now, and there's a piece in the New York Times about her taking on that role um, and and representing that company. Um, she's talked about how she's incredibly shy person and does not like to do press, and yet she has put herself in the position um, both by her success on the court, but also in developing all of these kind of relationships off the court, where it's an obligation that she has to be this like international face of not only her sport, but like she's also a sponsor of Levi's and they've never um, had an athlete before. And so she's just like everywhere on billboards and, and all this sort of thing. Um, And then just to talk a little bit about the more mundane aspects of um, her tennis, like she's won the last two grand slams that she's competed in and gotten to the end of, and she's not ever had really good results on clay. Again, when this all started, Naomi and her sister, Mari, um, said this on social media, that the kind of inciting event that they they said the inciting event was that people were doubting her performance on clay. And always and, asked her about it. Right. And and Mari was saying even someone in her own, own family had said, you're not very good on clay. And so, mm-hmm. OK, like throw all of that stuff that I just said. You know. can, can we? Can I add one more thing, Josh? Before you sure. finish, which is now she is also perceived as a voice for social justice. 
um, right. based on her on her on her actions at the U.S. Open last last fall. And Joel, you said like very smartly around the U.S. Open last year when she was getting all this attention and acclaim for having the names of um, victims of police violence on her masks. Like, wouldn't it be great if she didn't have to do that? If these incidents had never happened, number one, but number two, like if it wasn't on her to, you know, if if she could just play her sport or felt like she could just play her sport. Yes, that's maybe the most important mm-hmm. thing here. So like put all this stuff in like a pot and stir it up. Um, and that's like what you what you have with Naomi Osaka. And so you can choose any one of those things and prioritize it like okay, she has um, been open about her struggles with mental health. She's had this burden of being a voice for like her generation. And on the other hand, she's not very good at playing tennis on clay courts and doesn't want to be t- asked in press conferences about why aren't, don't you win on clay? And so anyone who's feeling any particular way about Naomi Osaka can like pick and choose any one of these things and say, you're being ridiculous. You just got to like be brave and like deal with it. And you're like super rich. And like, this is the, this is the thing that you can't deal with. Or you can say like, look at everything that this woman has had to go through in her life and career and to have this burden. It's just like too much for one person. And so I think your response to it is more about your perspective than about her or anything she's done. And yes, if the second statement had come first, it would probably be a different conversation. And maybe that's like a lesson for her and her team, or I don't know if it's a lesson at all, if it's just like a thing that happened. But I think the way that we talk about it now and going forward, again, it's, I think, more about who you are than about who she is. Okay, yeah, no, and I, tennis is really unique among the um, professional sports, at least to me. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, I'm, I'm, I may be missing some of them, but... Um, Really young athletes are thrust into high stakes international level competition at a really young age, right? So you can be a top ranked tennis phenom at 15, which doesn't give you much chance to figure out who you are and what you're okay with and how to manage your boundaries. And so, yeah, like I, as you mentioned, Josh, like navigating that, dealing with that burden, we've really have no idea like what that is like to sort of live your life in the public spotlight like that. Like just because you happen to be good at one thing doesn't mean that you necessarily want to live your life so publicly and to deal with this sort of scrutiny that you're going to deal with if you're the world's highest paid female athlete, right? One thing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good at dealing with the other. So I just wonder if she's not really had a chance to sort of navigate this and figure out how she feels about it. And it maybe felt overwhelming at this point it's certainly i mean for you to pull out of a major like obviously it was overwhelming obviously it was really debilitating and she needed a a time away but um you just kind of hope that it gives her a chance to sort of figure out who she is and what she wants to do going forward but i think the reason we're talking about this right is that we're media people and this is interesting to us as a media issue right because a lot of the conversation has been about the utility of post-game press conferences and Before I say anything, I'll I'll kind of throw it to you guys, but I think one of the disconnects here is that a lot of people comment on post-game press conferences without actually ever having been in one or having sat through one. And so they think that it doesn't actually matter. And I'm here to tell you as somebody that has been a beat reporter and a sports reporter for a number of years that actually those 
access to athletes is helpful in helping people find out what goes on in sports. And especially in tennis when there's no locker yeah. room access. Yeah. Like this is right. the only opportunity that you have to talk to these people unless you get a one-on-one, which is rare. Right, except right. that there are these these are not the most efficient ways to do this and I think that particularly mm-hmm. at big world sports events like the Olympics or the World Cup or Grand Slams, they are not efficient ways because you have a room filled with journalists who work under very different traditions and have very different standards and very different goals. And those don't always align with what most mainstream American reporters view as their jobs and their way of approaching them. And, you know, the the introduction of the, the, the televised press conference has been a detriment to journalism and to the athletes. Nobody likes this stuff. The NBA ones, Absolutely. as Brian Curtis pointed out in a really good piece in The Ringer, the NBA ones have turned into theater. Um, and the athletes who would, the players, you know, who would talk candidly and openly and, and you know, with a sort of working knowledge of, of, of how to deal with reporters in the locker room behave totally differently on this dais with a little bottle of water in front of them. And at the, these, big, these big world events, you know, at the Olympics, you've got the mixed zone where athletes can just walk past the reporters and choose to stop or not stop. At the World Cup, you've got rooms filled with reporters reporters from different countries, and the same thing is true at the Grand Slams. Everyone's got different agendas. You've got, you know, English tabloid reporters asking sexist and awful questions, and that's been documented historically. Um, So what do you do? I mean, to just say reflexively that this is bad and journalists are bad is wrong. Are there other solutions? Probably. You know, could you do, like, pool reporters at big events? Maybe three or four reporters per player, and the reporter requests the reporters request who they'd like to pool for at the start of the day, maybe rotate that job among the biggest organizations or home country organizations, let everybody else watch the feed of that interview. I don't know. There's got to be ways around it. And I think that that is a conversation that should happen. Um, and it's too bad that that wasn't the conversation that happened between Wednesday and Sunday and now has to happen afterward. Well, it's just hard to create rules that work for everyone, whether the everyone we're talking about is the press or athletes. If the solution here was, you know, you're struggling and so it's fine for you not to do press conferences at the French Open, then, you know, what if Sasha Zverev, who's been credibly accused of domestic violence, said, I don't want to do press conferences, then then what would the rule be there? Or um, if there are members of the press who ask sexist or racist or ridiculous questions, um, should the rule be you can only come from an approved outlet or is it should there be more willingness to just ban individual people? I don't know. It's just hard to come up with rules that wouldn't be taken advantage of. And so as as much as we'd like to say, um, oh, it would have been, um, you know, if they could have just talked to each other, maybe that's being naive. Like maybe there actually isn't a really easy and simple and workable solution. Well, but there, here. Are, there are a lot of people, Josh, that just say these are useless, that any athlete should have the right to not talk to anybody at any time. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, I think that a lot of people we're hearing say that are, are fairly ignorant of what's going on because I, 
I would argue that there are a lot of athletes that are currently telling their own stories and communicating with their fans. And that's not the same thing as media. Like that's like, it's always to me, the difference between media and content. And I'm, I'm, I refuse to argue on behalf of less media access to athletes. Like, and I'm actually sort of been surprised at the number of media uh, people, not even necessarily journalists who've been arguing on that. Like it's been weird to me, but what I would say is this, it isn't fair that the players are forced to speak with media while owners and other sport leaders and front office officials aren't. Like, keep in mind that the people at Roland Garros didn't answer any follow-up questions about this the other day, right? And so those folks should have to engage with the press as well. If access and accountability are the things that we talk about and like the utility of this stuff, then I do think that other people should have to play their role in this process as well. And like, It'd be real easy to look at that and say, well, hey, the players are always having to be made to go up there in uncomfortable situations and talk about things that they don't want to talk about or face up in a really difficult time. But I also think that like these people that are in charge of these events or team owners or whatever, that they should have to submit to an interview every now and again as well. And maybe that would help to level things out. But um, I don't know, maybe I'm being naive as well. It it was heartening to me that a lot of tennis players said that it is important to do these news conferences and talk to the media for themselves, for the events, for their careers. Um, So, you know, I don't think we're going to get to the point where every athlete says the media isn't useless. I don't want to talk to anybody. They recognize that it's a part of sports and sports are a part of entertainment. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to continue our conversation about Naomi Osaka, her withdrawal from the French Open and what it all means. And here's discuss that you have to be a Slate Plus member. Getting this bonus segment, it's not the only reason to become a Slate Plus member. Um, You get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get unlimited reading on the Slate website. Um, You get bonus episodes and segments of other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest, The Culture Fest, and a whole lot more. Um, You also help support this show, and the show would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus members. It's only a dollar for the first month. It's $59 per year after that. Um, And you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So it was a little more than a week ago when NBA fans were rejoicing in the return of home court advantage after a year of empty gyms in the bubble playoffs of 2020. Finally, we had rollicking crowds at the Madison Square Garden, at the Barclays Center, and even in other NBA cities that aren't New York. But it didn't take long before we were reminded of the downsides of welcoming fans back into NBA arenas. 
On Wednesday alone, a fan in Philadelphia poured popcorn on Russell Westbrook. In New York, a fan spit on Trey Young. And in Utah, three fans were ejected for taunting John Morant's family. Two days later in Boston, a fan threw a bottle at Kyrie Irving as he walked off the floor. And literally, last night as I was writing this introduction, a fan was tackled on the floor in Washington, D.C. I assume Josh and Stefan aren't suspects. Late in the third quarter of Game 4 in the Wizards' Sixer series. So, Josh... Do you think this is a new worrying phenomenon or that we happen to be paying more attention to all of this stuff right now? I guess both. When I saw all these headlines and we were preparing to have this conversation, a headline kind of came across and I said to you guys and I was like, this might not be related at all, but also it might be totally related, which is airlines saying we're not ready yet to start serving alcohol on planes. And so... It feels hard for me to decide, and I'm hoping you guys can help with this, how much of this is like people getting back into big crowds and just like acting insane, and how much of it is people being awful in ways that we shouldn't actually try to explain away or contextualize or, you know, use extenuating circumstances to to try to, you know, frame. And actually, let's play this clip from Kevin Durant after the Celtics-Nets game on Friday. This was in Boston. And the context here is that Kyrie Irving, former Celtic, back in Boston, after talking about his experience there and kind of suffering through racially inflected incidents in, in his time in Boston. Um, and then Kyrie gets a water bottle thrown at him by a fan as he's walking off the court on Friday. Here's what Kevin Durant had to say about it. Being in the house for a year and a half with the pandemic, um, got a lot of people on edge, got a lot of people uh, stressed out. Um, but when you come to these games, you got to realize, man, these, these, these men are human. You know, we're not animals. We're not in a circus. Uh, you coming to the game is not all about you as a fan. So have some respect for the game, have some respect for these human beings, and have some respect for yourself. Your mother wouldn't be uh, proud of you throwing water bottles at, at basketball players or spitting on players or tossing popcorn. So grow the fuck up uh, and, and enjoy the game. You know, it's, bigger than, it's bigger than you. Yeah, you'd think people would be grateful just to be back in arenas and would have some perspective on life after a pandemic that's killed more than half a million Americans. But no, um, you know, that's who we are as a culture. It's who we are as a people. And unfortunately, I don't think this is, you know, the result of being cooped up for a year. I think this is just a trend that has gone on in sports for decades, particularly directed at black athletes. The NBA has had, you know, more incidents than we can count of fans taunting, throwing things at um, diminishing, demeaning players. So I'm not surprised, um, but I do think that everyone's radar is much higher um, because this is something we haven't seen in a year. So punish the fuck out of these people. Don't let them back into arenas ever. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think these fans know what they're doing and they feel entitled and emboldened by the crowd. So like, you know, it could be just being back 
amongst a lot of people gives them the gives them the cover they need to act out in ways that they would not have acted otherwise. What you right? mean like nobody has seen me doing anything for the last year when I've been throwing shit at my TV, so maybe they won't see me yeah, throwing right. shit at the actual players now? Exactly. Yeah, that's under the cover of darkness, right? And you know, fans have always engaged in this sort of behavior and and now I think we're a little more attuned to it. And the reason I'm thinking of this is because over the weekend a video of this of an incident from my youth started making the rounds again. And it was when Vernon Maxwell, then of the Houston Rockets, walked up into the stands in Portland and punched a fan in 1995. And actually what's sort of amazing about it is that very few people respond. Like it's like Robert Ory just runs up into the stands and, and walks him back out. Vernon sits back down on the bench and the game continues, right? Although Vernon got a 10-game suspension for that, which is amazing in and of itself, too, that like he punched a fan, only got 10 games, and life got back to normal, and the Rockets won a championship that year. Uh, but, um, but the thing that I, I that sort of occurred to me is that Vernon has never apologized for it, and in many ways feels vindicated by the events of the past few days. He tweeted this yesterday. He said, "It's just a bottled water, right?" And he's referring to the the Kyrie Boston uh, thing. Then, if you feel disrespected, then do something about it, or it will keep on happening. Guess how many times a fan made a comment about my stillborn daughter? It cost me some money and a suspension, but I sleep fine every night knowing I stood up for her. And so when I think about watching that and the malice at the palace, um, the one thing that I've, I've thought about is that the players that were involved in that stuff, they've always, after, after they've confronted fans for this sort of stuff, they've never felt bad about it afterward. Like maybe they didn't like you know, the, the consequence, missing games, uh, getting fined or whatever, but like there's enough resentment from the players to the fans that act in this way um, that has built up enough that, yeah, I just don't think it's, you can't just say that, oh, this is a result of the pandemic. This is something that has clearly been building for a while. And the players that have been in the middle of this crucible over the years, they're always saying, well, look, fans have been doing this shit forever. And sometimes you have to handle it yourself. And when you do, you'll never feel bad about it uh, at the end of the day. Well, I think one reason why the tenor of the conversation has been different this past week is that all of these players were, and and you hear this kind of talked about in a criminal justice context, as like, quote unquote, perfect victims. Like, they had this like terrible shit happen to them. Like, Trae Young got spit on. Kyrie had a bottle thrown at him. Spit like, on during they the didn't, pandemic. They, did, they didn't charge into the stands. They didn't punch anyone. And so there wasn't any of this kind of pearl clutching about, did they go too far and how did they react? The focus has been kind of strictly and rightfully on the fan behavior without the kind of um, distraction of the conversation about what the players did. But I do want to make this one point. I was thinking about, okay, what would the response be today to um, the so-called malice at the palace when um, Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, went into the stands after um, a fan threw a beer on him? And my memory of it was that the players were just like really excoriated. Um, but going back and looking at it, immediately after that happened, this game was on ESPN. They like cut away to the ESPN panel show and every single person on that panel show blamed the fans and said that the fans were out of control. And so I think a lot of, we like to think that there's been like, oh, people are talking about this stuff so differently now. Like people, a lot of people knew what the what the story was and what the deal was back in the 2000s or back in the 90s or back in the 
80s. And so we're not necessarily, oh, we're like so much smarter and more enlightened about how this stuff works now. It could be just that different voices are being elevated now. There's like the opportunity for whether it's players or um, members of the media to express themselves on social media or wherever. And like, like, like I said, certain like more reactionary voices are a little bit turned down in the mix or they're or just like more of a uh, opening for for more different people to um, talk about themselves. But it's not like, oh, in 2021, the like range of opinions being expressed is really all that different. No, it's not. And Joel, I think part of it might be that we respect the players more today. And I think we respect their restraint and we understand what they are faced with. So yeah, nobody 20 or 30 years ago would say the fans were justified or, oh, those bad players, though, you know, David Stern certainly did victimize the the the, the players or demonize the players rather in the malice at the palace, because I guess he had to do something. But I think part of it might be that we understand that the players have more agency and we see them being restrained and there is more respect for who they are and and what they do on the court and what they face. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you couldn't hear from Vernon Maxwell or whatever or whoever, you know, in 1995 or even 2004 in the year of the Malice at the Palace. There just wasn't quite the same avenue to get this sort of perspective and get it as often as we get it now, right? And so we're just hearing the people that are affected by this sort of behavior speak up about it more often and they've got more outlets to get it out there. And yeah, yeah of course, it's going to sort of change the narrative. But I mean, yeah, I, again, even if you go all the way back to like Jackie Robinson, any black player that has come up through the history of time and gone into these environments, they've been dealing with fans and, and terrible behavior their entitled time. So like I, like I said, this is about entitlement. This is about people who go to games and think that they can talk to mostly black players in this way and get away with it and that the crowd will be with them and that ultimately the league will back them up. And so like we have not quite... I think people have a little bit better sense now and that like it's not quite as explicitly racial as it once was, but it still like has remnants of that old dynamic. And that's why like when you get to these games and if, I mean, look, I mean, you go to a game, I mean, we know who are at the, the fucking games, right? Like it's not a lot of black people that are at NBA arenas or MLB stadiums or NFL stadiums, right? It tends to be largely white male audiences. And so, yeah, you're going to get this sort of like, as Josh said, racially inflected incidents. Yeah, I apologize for that. Yeah. But <laughs> Kyrie, Kyrie did call it subtle racism, and I was trying, yeah. like, off the dome to remember what he had said. I didn't want to say racially tinged, but racially inflected <laughs> is, just, is just as bad. And, and, so. you know, and Kyrie, to his credit, recognized that, right? He said it's been that way in history in terms of entertainment, performers and sports for a long period of time, just underlying racism and just treating people like they're in a human zoo. So one of the more amazing moments that's like parallel to this, like slightly connected, is Kyrie stepping on the face of the mm -hmm. leprechaun. Poor at, Lucky. At, at center, center court. And you oh. had former Celtics like Kevin Garnett and Glenn Davis saying, this is over <laughs> the line. Glenn Davis of LSU, by the way, by the way. Over, this is over the line. And like Glenn Davis saying, it's like you've stepped on every player who ever played for the Celtics. So like... <laughs> Fans don't have a monopoly on on idiocy and on thinking about like oh players aren't behaving right. I mean, Kevin Garnett. I think it was Tyler Conway on Twitter who pointed out saying to like a player whose mother had died, "Happy Mother's Day." Like 
the most like vile shit that you could like possibly imagine like Kevin Garnett has said to other players on the court in the like realm of trash talk and so for him to be like you can't step on the face of the leprechaun and that's just <laughs> respecting the game is incredibly rich on the other hand there is this sort of like bond and connection that players have with each other on the court and like when you're in the game i think there's certainly different players have different standards and people think like talking about a guy's mother or like talking about whatever is like over the line but when you're like in the heat of battle i think there's a kind of allowance for some stuff whereas fans like think they're playing the game and like think that they're a part of it they just like they're stupid or they're deluded or and they're drunk and so there there is a difference there i'm not trying to say that a fan who you know taunts vernon maxwell about his stillborn child is like the same as if um, a player taunted somebody about their mother or about their wife. They're, they're different things, and I think the players will react differently. But it is just still surprising to me anytime like a retired player just says something so stupid like that a, like that a dumb fan would say. Like, who the hell cares about stepping on this stupid leprechaun? Like, can, do you actually believe it? I just cannot no. understand. I just don't <laughs> understand that. Well, think, I mean, think about how many fights happen in football over, like, stomping on the midfield. But those over. are college like, kids. Yeah, I mean, remember when Terrell Owens? No, Terrell Owens did it, too. He wasn't in college. Yeah, yeah right. George Teague acted up at, as a result. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, yeah, I mean. All right, it, fine. It's my, not- my caveat on that one is that's Terrell Owens, and it's football. <laughs> and it's football. <laughs> But no, it's, yes, it is stupid. It has happened before. But like, maybe it just seems more ridiculous because it's a leprechaun, if we're being, if we're being honest. And it's like, <laughs> lucky that leprechaun, well, it's not like you're stepping on Red Auerbach's face or something like that. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting too, is that like, I mean, uh, Boston, man, Boston had a hell of a weekend on the internet. <laughs> uh, and and um, I think that like, you know, so I I, I kind of get like the defensiveness that Boston Boston fans and Boston players have about like Boston's reputation for racism, right? And maybe it's fair, maybe it's not. It has developed a reputation of being notoriously hostile to black players. And what, Danny even though- Ainge, what Danny Ainge said was like, you could you could argue. I'm not saying I'm saying this. You could argue that if Danny Ainge had said. Boston fans have an undeserved bad reputation. You could argue that that was like within the realm of things that are reasonable to say. He said, I've never heard anyone right. say this in my 26 years or however many years it was, which is just like your own players, including Marcus Smart, have said it. Are you just like not not listening to your own players? It's just such a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. You would think that Danny Ainge in Boston would be a little bit more attuned to that, even if only for reputation management mm-hmm. and not because they think the behavior is truly problematic. Because Howard Bryan pointed out that of in, in like the last 40 to 50 years, only two black in their prime free agent athletes have ever signed with Boston. One of them was Al Horford, and the other was Kimber Walker. Kimber Walker, who went to school at the University of Connecticut, right? And I mean, I would like to note, of those two players, Kimber Walker also was recently uh, caught on camera walking with a Don't Tread on Me uh, jacket. So, I mean, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it, it doesn't make any... It, it's not necessarily a surprise that uh, Kimber Walker would have been the guy that signed with Boston. But, but, but neither here nor there. But I, I, you would just think that... 
just for self-preservation, just to make your job easier, just to make Boston a more attractive free agent destination, that you would at least pretend that it was a problem and that you'd heard of it before and that you'd spoken with players within your own organization about the things that they have faced from the crowd there. As Brad a way to Stevens educate said, them and yourself and to, to attract other players to the city that has this reputation. I got one last question uh, before we move on, and that is this has been a run of of episodes during the playoffs at the time when, yes, arenas are beginning to fill up for the first time, but also when the NBA is most prominent on national television and in the media. Um, Dave Zirin wrote on Twitter that if this sort of thing continues, the NBA could wind up like European soccer with franchises getting punished for fan behavior and players walking off in solidarity in protest of, of racist and, and other um, and other taunts. Um, do you think that's possible? And would that make sense? I mean, players are certainly more, you know, they've got more agency and they're working together more than they ever have, particularly after the events of the last year. Could we see that with this? I, I mean, I don't think so, right? Um, I don't, I've been seen, I mean, I think that they acknowledge that it's an issue, but I don't think it's an overall, it, it's that, I don't think that they're considered with that sort of urgency, right, or import. I, or maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, maybe if you were to ask a group of people that were all Russell Westbrook, then maybe, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe he might be willing to 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 <laughs> to boycott. I would like to uh, see a team like entirely that. of West, Russell Westbrooks. Oh boy, not a lot of great shooting, but a lot of intensity. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about this conceptually because on the one hand, you can say there's this huge number of incidents. You can also, and players have talked about. This is a problem in Boston. This is a problem in Utah. You could also say this is, out of all of these huge number of incidents, what is it, five fans total out of tens of tens of thousands? Um, and so, I, again, I think different players would give you different answers if if asked, like, is this a huge, like, NBA kind of society-wide issue that we need to take a stand on? Or is it something that can just be addressed by when this happens, kick the people out of the arena, take it seriously, and ban them? I think my guess would be the latter. Although, if you have an instance where it recurs and like, okay, there's another thing in Utah, and then another thing in Utah during these playoffs, or there's like four more things in Boston, then the conversation could shift. But to the extent that it feels like it's isolated incidents of, of fan behavior that accrete, but as long as it's like, all right, one fan here, one fan there, I think as long as the teams and the NBA is very clear and direct and like taking this seriously, my guess would be that you won't see player walkouts. Players like hostile environments. Like, I mean, they, lo they love a full gym and they don't mind a hostile road crowd. It's just you know, when it ventures into the racism and mm -hmm. the other sort of stuff that, that's over the line. Yeah, obviously they're going to have a problem with it. But keep, I mean, we were talking about how great Madison Square Garden, the atmosphere was just a week ago, right? And um, I think players don't mind that at all. And yeah, I think that you, you, you're right, Josh, that they're probably more inclined to punish these like individual transgressions than thinking of some sort of larger collective action. Because I mean, Trey Young was eating that shit up, man. He likes silence in the MSG crowd. And I mean, all players sort of like that to an extent. Up next, Rebecca Schumann will join us to talk about the continuing greatness of Simone Biles.
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The 2021 U.S. Classic was the first major elite gymnastics meet since the start of the pandemic, which means it was the first time all the gymnasts vying to represent the United States in the Tokyo Olympics we're all competing in the same venue. Uh, well, that event, the U.S. Classic, did not provide much clarity on who all is going to fill out the U.S. women's gymnastics team. We do know who, barring catastrophe, will be the leader of that squad. Simone Biles, winner of four gold medals in Rio, likely winner of a bunch more in Tokyo, did all the things that she does at the U.S. Classic, um, one of which was debuting the most difficult vault a woman has ever done in competition, a Yurchenko double pike. Writing in Slate, Rebecca Schumann said, it was the most unbelievable and the already unbelievable list of skills Biles has pioneered by multiple orders of magnitude, and we are all lucky to be alive to witness it. On Twitter, Biles herself wrote, I'm sorry, but I can't believe I competed a double pike on vault. Joining us now is Rebecca Schumann. Welcome back to the show, Rebecca. Always great to be here. Thank you, guys. Let's start with the basics. What is a Yurchenko double pike? And why was even Simone Biles impressed with herself for pulling it off? Well, so the Yurchenko word refers to the approach onto the vault. And that just means that the gymnast is doing a back handspring onto the vaulting table. The vast majority of elite vaults competed today are that approach. And... Where Simone's vault goes into truly unbelievable territory is that when most gymnasts compete, they do their little back handspring off the vault, they do one flip or somersault or salto, and then they add some twists to it. Nobody in the history of women's gymnastics, with the minor exception of Michaela Maroney once, has ever thought to add another flip to it because you just need so much you already need more propulsion than any human should be capable of just to do one flip with some twists in it. But to do a whole second flip, you're already starting upside down. So you're not just, it's not really a double pike. It's like a two and a half pike. And so she, little four foot seven Simone, manages to pop herself off of that vault and then flip two and a half whole times in the air before she lands very upright on her feet. That's where she actually separates herself from anyone else who's ever done this before. And by anyone else, I mean a very small handful of men. The very small handful of men who've managed to crank this baby around have landed with their chests down and have not made it look good. And her execution is far and away leagues better than any anyone who's ever done it. Right. So I, I think to put this in, in terms of another sport, this looks like something that you should do off of a diving board into a pool where you've got distance and you've got spring in order to complete all of those rotations. Um, it is really hard to our you know untrained eyes to recognize just how amazing this is, but it's not that hard to see how high she gets off of the vault and how she spins around the sort of force that she generates. 
That's the sort of tragedy of the Yurchenko double pike is that it is lost on the vast majority of people who look at it. And yet it's such an incredible feat that you all should look at it anyway. It's a par- it's a paradox. So Rebecca, I, I, I'm a, a, a novice here, right? And so um, Simone Biles is at this point, she's what, 24 years old? Am I right? Yeah. So that's correct. sort of like she's at what you would typically think is sort of the tail end of like being an elite international level gymnast, right? Like that is an age at which you sort of age out of the elite part of gymnast or am, or am I wrong about that? Because I guess I'm wondering that was- why now? Like at this stage of your career, like how does this pop up now? How do you get better? How does that, you know, get this sort of athleticism at this point in your career? Well, yeah. So that's actually, that's a two parts, like two different questions. So until the last decade or so, women's gymnastics was generally considered a teenager's sport. But because of the so-called open-ended code of points, when they changed the scoring away from the perfect 10, it did start rewarding sort of incredible feats of athleticism, really more than, you know, the sort of balletic elegance and grace that had characterized the sport for a lot of years before. And I'm not making a value judgment on that. It's just a a statement of fact. And because of that, gymnasts started being able to train in different ways. And there are now many gymnasts who are excelling all across the world into their mid-20s, late-20s, 30s, even 40s. The great Oksana Chuzovitina, the vaulting legend, is even older than me, and I'm 44. (laughs) So, I mean, I remember she was in the Olympics when I was, like, thinking delusionally that I wanted to go to the Olympics. Um, So that's one thing. So the age thing is not as much of a big deal as it once was. The thing is that if Simone had come back and done exactly identically all of her routines from Rio in Tokyo she'd win. She had enough difficulty then to blow the competition out of the way. She personally gets bored and she enjoys challenging herself and pushing the limits of the sport. And she started training this double pike to improve uh, what's called a block, which is just basically when the gymnast pops off the vaulting table with her hands. She wanted to improve her block for other vaults. And so she decided to start training quote unquote for fun a vault that required a huge, huge block. And then suddenly they looked at her landing it on a soft, you know, a soft mat and thought, you know what, <laughs> you could do this. This is actually possible. And so, you know, she does these things because she can. She does these things because she's the greatest and because it would be boring for her to not push the sport as far as it can possibly go. Yeah, I mean, she raises and answers questions about why sports even are, um, that she has taken things to such a level where for her, you know, we don't want to concede anything here, but winning is such a given or has been such a given that it feels kind of beside the point. And for her, both with what she's done on the vault and on the mat and on all the other apparatuses, but also what she's done in terms of her outspokenness and her kind of pushing against the strictures of this sport, she's achieved so much more than anyone, you know, who then you would think is possible for somebody who's even won all of the medals that she's won, that it just transcends the gold and the additional gold and the gold beyond that. Yeah, she really does. There's really very little way to express how much better she is 
at gymnastics than anyone else has ever been at gymnastics. There's no, if you're measuring athletic greatness simply by, I mean, this is just one metric, but if you measure athletic greatness simply by the distance between first and second, the best and the second best, Simone Biles is by far the greatest athlete who has ever lived. There is no gymnast who can ever come close to touching her. Um, you know, yes, knock wood, God forbid, if she fell six times in one meet, then it would be a problem. <laughs> Even she is fallible. She is human. And she does fall, as we've seen. So it's not, you know, I, I don't want to be the person going in saying, oh, there's absolutely no way she won't come out of Tokyo draped in gold. Because truly, this has been a, a, a year and a year before it where truly anything can happen. So we we don't know. Now comes the end yet part, which is that she is doing something that no one has ever done before and no one conceivably, no one else conceivably could do. And yet there is a belief that she is not being rewarded for that in terms of the scoring. Can you explain the process by which uh, moves are scored for gymnastics and why with the Yurchenko that Biles is performing, she may not be getting her just due. Yeah, this is a big controversy in Simone Biles' world, and it has been since 2019 when she debuted a new balance beam dismount. That is just off the charts difficult. And it was valued a little bit lower than um, than people were expecting. Which, so which means how, what? What, what is, what's the yeah, value so gonna, system? How does that work? How does that work? Yeah. So this, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is not a very transparent um, process. What happens is that when a gymnast wants to debut a new skill and enter it into the code of points, they formally submit it with its specifics to the Women's Technical Committee of the International Gymnastics Federation. So the Women's Technical Committee meets and they decide, okay, if this gymnast can land and successfully complete this trick, it gets named after her, um, What? how are we going to value it? And so what they do, new tricks are not always the most, the hardest ones. They're, sometimes they're just novel. And so there's precedent because they can value it ac- according to similar to similar tricks. But with Simone Biles, it's always harder. And so what they have to do is they have to look at the hardest existing trick and then think, okay, how much higher should we go? for this. And because no one has ever on the women's side even thought to compete a double salto, there's just not much precedent for valuing a double flip. And so they valued it a couple tenths higher than the current most difficult vault, which is also a Biles vault, (laughs) which is now going to be the Biles 1. This will be the Biles 2. And so the Biles 1 and the Protonova, which is sort of the the mirror image of the Yurchenko double pike, it has a front handspring double front. It's actually a little more dangerous than the Yurchenko double pike because it's very easy to over-rotate, and if you over-rotate it, you will break your neck. The vault of death. The vault of death, yeah. And so the Protonova used to be rewarded for its incredible danger at a whopping 7.0 difficulty value, and what that brought upon was a lot of vaulters chucking it. And chucking is it when you like throw a trick that you're not like, you don't think you can land, but you just feel like I'm going to try it. And then it's valued so high that even if I landed on my posterior, I'll make a final and I'll maybe even get on the podium. And so the technical committee did not want people to be chucking vaults anymore, especially not to be chucking dangerous vaults. And so they devalued the Protonova and they have been loath to high value really dangerous faults again. 
they valued the Biles too, or the future Biles too. She hasn't landed it in international competition yet at a 6.6, which is two tenths higher. And, you know, Simone and her team were hoping for a 6.8. I could see it valued like that. But, you know, these are human people. The technical committee is a group of human people and they all have their own interests. Some of those interests might be keeping the field competitive. Some of those interests might be, quote unquote, discouraging, dangerous tricks. Some of those interests might just be like, Simone's been on top for too long. And some of them might be just like, well, that's the next set of numbers. You And you don't, you don't know what's in the heart of this, of this group of human people. But because it's now the second incredible new skill that has come out with a value that's a little bit lower, really by a couple of tenths, we're not talking points, then Simone's team has expected it is looking a little bit like a pattern and like she might be being punished slightly for her difficulty. But unfortunately, this creates a narrative online of people saying these skills are banned. She can't do them. She's too good. And that's also not true. None of the bio skills are banned. Um, And she competes most of them. Well, let me ask you this, Rebecca. So it seems to me, as parent looking from the outside, that the absence of the Caroli family from USA Gymnastics is is, is influencing some of this, right? Because like even from the beginning, Simone has sort of been at loggerheads with the Carolis. Like they, they had sort of like a tumultuous relationship early on, and like now, I've, it feels to me that like it's not a coincidence that now these much more challenging moves. Are being that she's attempting them now, now that the Carolis are no longer affiliated with USA Gymnastics. Is that a, a, a sort of a fair op- observation or not? The line is not as direct as you're painting it, but yes. Um, the Carolis, the absence of the Carolis is the best thing that has ever happened to the humanity of the U.S. gymnastics program. Um, it was not a positive environment. It enabled untold amounts of horrific abuse, um, not just the kind that you've read about in the papers. The Carolas being gone is a net is 100% net good. And yes, Marta Caroli did not want people doing super high-flying dangerous tricks like that because they just weren't a sure thing for medals. It wasn't really like she was, I don't really think she was really that worried about people getting injured because she made people train on injuries all the time, allegedly. So yeah, it is more like there is no one around that can tell Simone Biles what to do. She's the most successful and famous gymnast of all time. She speaks out against USAG almost every day and they can't do anything about it. And in a sport where gymnasts have mostly been told to be quiet and stay in line for like five decades, you love to see it, honestly. And to have this be just like this um, like smart firecracker black athlete doing it. Oh, I love it. I love it. You love to see it. How do you kind of parse Biles's like clear annoyance, if and maybe we could use a stronger word, at the way that she's being treated by this technical committee vis-a-vis the point value with the idea that she's going to win anyway. And she's, for her, like, it seems like it's about more than points. Like, she's doing this just because she wants to do it. It's not, she's not doing it to try to maximize her points. And yet it's galling to her and offensive to her to feel like it's not being scored correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of principle at this point. Two-tenths isn't going to be especially when something is valued at a at a you know 6.6 and most people are vaulting at a 5.4 um, that's not going to make a difference she's going to 
likely if she lands that in competition, she will probably beat second place by a point. And so that's not... Yeah, it is more, I mean, after the double-double dismount in 2019 was was felt to be undervalued, she was expecting it. And so it's more just, yeah, it's a little bit of pushback. Again, no one tells, not even the FIG, not even the Women's Technical Committee tells Simone Biles what to do because even in a slightly undervalued skill, she's going to knock it out of the park and her execution's so beautiful that she won't get... Um, docked on it. So yeah, I mean, I think that if this was them trying to get her to stop doing things like this, it's not the way to do it. I mean, I I don't think she, I don't think humanity has it in us to get another Biles skill between in the teeny tiny time between now and Tokyo, but I, you know, if anyone could do it. For all of this, let's point out that Simone Biles is not superhuman. She did fall in this warm-up meet. And yeah, it's a warm-up meet for the Olympics, and she's still got a few months to be completely perfect. But mistakes happen in gymnastics. Yeah, they happen more often than they don't. Um, And it's very important for somebody like Simone Biles, who, as Joel pointed out, is on the older spectrum of sort of international elite gymnastics has been doing this for years, has complained rightly all the time that her body is breaking down. It is really important that she not be training full routines very much because full routines on competition services are just injury opportunities waiting to happen. And even when they go well, they are so hard on the body and they're so painful. And so Simone's going to make the team. She's going to lead the team. She has no, she has nothing to prove at the warm-up meets. And so these are just for her to shake out cobwebs, and she does not need to be dialed in. Her mind was obviously on the double pike in this meet, as it should have been. And so, yeah, maybe she wasn't thinking that hard about bars, or which is her least favorite event, or floor, where her new routine is really dynamic in its choreography and requires a lot more endurance than any of her other routines that I've ever seen. It's also gorgeous. But so, yeah, she doesn't need to be hitting four for four here, nationals, to be honest, even at Olympic trials, she doesn't need to be dialed in until she walks onto that competition floor in Tokyo. Rebecca Schumann writes about gymnastics and appreciates Simone Biles for Slate. Always a pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And now it is time for Afterballs. And let us now praise old gymnasts, as uh, Rebecca Schumann did in our previous segment. Oksana Chuzafatina has competed 
for the Soviet Union, Uzbekistan, and Germany, born June 19, 1975, which makes her about to be 46 years old. She has competed after becoming a mother, one of not many women gymnasts who have that distinction. She didn't have a great performance at the World Championships in 2019, but she was good enough to still qualify for Tokyo when it was going to be in 2020. Uh, We'll have to see, we'll hope to see that this vault specialist will compete in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics in 2021, if and when they happen. Stefan, what is your Oksana Chisafatina? When it comes to protests at the 1968 Olympics, history is focused with good reason on the sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Smith and Carlos finished first and third in the 200 meters and, of course, raised their black-gloved fists and bowed their heads on the medal stand during the national anthem. That happened on August 16th. Two days later, the U.S. Olympic Committee suspended Smith and Carlos and ordered them, as if they were criminals, to leave Mexico City within 48 hours. The action came after the IOC threatened to kick out the entire American team if Smith and Carlos weren't disciplined. The USOC caved in in spectacular fashion, issuing a fawningly apologetic statement apologizing for the discourtesy displayed by Smith and Carlos in departing from tradition. It said that the athletes untypical exhibitionism violated the basic standards of good manners and sportsmanship, which are so highly valued in the United States, and it called the protest immature behavior. John Carlos said he wasn't sorry, asked if he had embarrassed his country. He said, I am not thinking of my country now. I am thinking of its black people. More than half a century later, it boggles the mind what that day, October 18th, 1968, in Mexico City was like, politically and athletically. The expulsions and the statement came in the morning. Word spread quickly. A banner was hung from the sixth floor of the U.S. dormitory reading, Get Rid of Brundage, the IOC's president, Avery Brundage. Reporters swarmed the complex, asking athletes what they were going to do. Two marquee events featuring prominent black American athletes, the long jump and the 400 meters, were scheduled for later that day. The favorite in the 400 was Lee Evans, who died last month at the age of 74. Evans was among the black athletes, including Smith and Carlos, who were identified with the protest movement inspired by the African-American sociologist Harry Edwards, then at San Jose State. John Carmichael of the Chicago Daily News described Evans as the number three militant among the black Olympic element. After Smith and Carlos were banished, but before his race, Evans told reporters, if two men go home, perhaps all of us will go home. The Associated Press said that Evans was in tears and seemingly in a state of near collapse. But Carlos asked him to run, so Evans agreed to. Right before the race, the USOC's president read Evans and the other runners the statement about Smith and Carlos, clearly as a warning. As he came on the track, Evans wore ankle-high black socks, a protest gesture that Smith and Carlos had employed on the medal stand. As the sprinters warmed up, across the track, Bob Beeman, regarded as the number four militant, the Chicago paper said, had jumped an astonishing 29 feet, two and a half inches, breaking the world record in the long jump by almost two feet. 
the 400 runners had to wait for the crowd to quiet down. Evans walked into the blocks and waved toward the stands, apparently at Smith and Carlos, who had been secreted into a British television booth behind the press box. That's where Carlos made his comments about not regretting his actions and thinking about black America. Evans then torched another world record, running 43.8 in the 400. Fellow Americans Larry James and Ron Evans finished second and third. The tension over how the Americans would accept their medals was profound. Beeman took the medal stand with his sweatpants rolled up to draw attention to his black socks. Ralph Boston, who finished third in the long jump, went barefoot. Beeman said he was protesting what's happening in the USA. Boston said he was protesting too and expected to be sent home. Neither of them was. Evans, Freeman, and James who was described by another reporter as a non-militant, took the medal stand wearing black berets and raised clenched fists in a black power salute. Evans wore a button reading Olympic Project for Human Rights that a lot of athletes were wearing during those games. But during the anthem, they removed their hats, stood up straight, and faced the flag, which seemed, at least for the media and the sportocrats, to make a difference. Not quite the same thing, a photo caption in the New York Times read. The AP reported that Evans accepted his gold medal without incident. At the news conference afterward, Evans and his co-medalists played down their protests. The Chicago reporter wrote that Stan Wright, a black coach with the U.S. team, had told the runners right before the press conference, don't talk about anything but the race. So they said the raised fists were our way of saluting. Asked whether the berets associated with the Black Panthers were a social message, Evans said, it was raining. We didn't want to get wet. Still, Evans added, I feel I won this gold medal for black people in the United States and black people all over the world. The message was sent after all. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, I would love to know more, and maybe Harry Edwards is the person that has to talk about it, but the tradition of black athlete activism out of San Jose State. Um, I don't live too far from San Jose State, and there are not a lot of black people out here. I would love to know how that happened. Oh, God, I may have just assigned myself a story. I don't know. The last thing, I mean, as much as like, we talked about this before, um, as much as like the activism piece of this is great, um, I like to also just, Lee Evans as an athlete is amazing. Like his record, amazing. His record in the 400 lasted for 20 years. Um, right. Like he was, tw- he was a generation ahead of the people that he ran against at that time, which is, I mean, it's to tell you something, like not very many people can run 43-8 in the 400, even today, like even among I mean, goddamn, I said it in the in the after ball, but what a day. Yeah. I mean, Lee Evans running 43-8 and Bob Beeman jumping 29 plus, like one of the greatest days and most interesting days in the history of American sports. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which helps us out. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. And Lee Evans. Hey guys. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.